Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. At the end of June, a group of senators announced that an agreement was reached on a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Since then, however, Disagreements have arisen on specific provisions within the package and Democrats' intentions regarding a separate legislative package that would need to pass via reconciliation. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NAHU's Vice Presidents of Congressional Affairs, Chris Hartman and John Green, are here to discuss the details of these bills and what they're hearing on Capitol Hill. So to be clear here, today we are discussing two legislative packages, one bipartisan infrastructure package, and one package being put together by Democrats. Is that correct? Yeah, so there are two packages going on. Sometimes the media does muddle the conversation by combining them all into one conversation. Sometimes the media will also talk about budget resolutions, which help set up a framework for discussion, but don't really impact anyone's lives. But you're right, there are two different packages one being discussed in a bipartisan manner, one being discussed on Democrats only. The bipartisan one is essentially an infrastructure package, more traditional, although it all depends how you define the word traditional. There are things like broadband in there that have not been in the past defined as traditional infrastructure, but it is more of our material infrastructure package that five Senate Republicans and five Senate Democrats are in the process of negotiating This week on Wednesday, the Senate actually voted to proceed on the bipartisan infrastructure package. So that starts the process of debate and amendment for the infrastructure package. That vote required 60 votes, so it was filibuster full. So it is something that the Republicans in the Senate could have stopped if they wanted to, but there was bipartisan support to get, I believe it was 67 votes all told to begin that debate. We are still waiting for all the details of the infrastructure deal. While we've seen summaries and uh, outlines, I don't have every last piece of information. We've not seen the text of the bill. While we have some information about pay-fors, we don't have all the information that I would like or feel comfortable with. But at the same time, the Senate hasn't finished its debate on the bipartisan infrastructure package. And so as we speak on July 29th, the Senate is in the process of doing that right now. So you mentioned broadband. What else is currently included in this infrastructure package that they're working on? So the infrastructure package that they're talking about includes highways, bridges, shipping, all surface transportation. There are disagreements on transit and how transit will work and disagreements on that broadband piece. While they want broadband increased, it's particularly important for low-income in rural America, how to do it remains one of the differences. Some things to keep in mind as we look at that package, that even if they do come to an agreement on it, we are still talking about five Senate Republicans and five Senate Democrats, and you have to get to 60 because this is uh, legislation going through the Senate in a more traditional manner, meaning you have to get to the threshold of 60 votes. You know, you would expect that if it does pass, that means they would probably hold together 
50 Democrats and 10 Republicans, but it's not clear that the votes are there yet for that. I think part of the disagreements also can tend around how do we pay for this package? Where are the finances coming around for that? One of the earlier proposals were to pay for it through IRS auditing more companies and others. Senate Republicans have said no to this, including the five senators who are negotiating on this. So I think that's going to be continue to be part of the discussion. Why this is relevant to NAHU is also, this is sort of the thing that the Senate is trying to work on first before we get to the second package that involves more health care. So there isn't any traditional health care in this infrastructure package, but it is something that we're looking forward to because it then affects all the pieces that come after this infrastructure package, which is why John, Marcy, Janet, and I are all also paying close attention to this infrastructure package. So one of the pay-fors, which is always contentious, is the use of unused COVID funds and how much is in there. And the CBO says there's a trillion dollars. Then on the transit issue, Republicans feel like they put enough money in there and that adding more can't possibly be spent. One interesting wrinkle in terms of pay-fors that we did pick up was the Medicare Part D rebate rule will be delayed a couple of years to help pay for the underlying bipartisan infrastructure bill. And then remaining dollars will be used in the reconciliation bill to help pay for part of that bill. So that's the only health care pay for uh, that I've heard to date. Yeah, that role that John is talking about, I think is interesting. This goes back to the Trump administration's desire to eliminate rebating, but with the hope that if they eliminated rebating, drug prices would come down. Several of our members, particularly those who work in self-insurance, were concerned that if you eliminate rebating, what would force the drug companies to lower prescription drug prices? Furthermore, a lot of our agents who work in the self-insurance universe do rely on a lot of that rebating for putting self-insurance plans into place. Yeah, so the hope I think in the Senate was to do this bipartisan infrastructure bill followed by budget resolutions which sets up the next reconciliation bill that will be considered in September. September is going to be crazy. There is a lot happening in September. There are expiring tax provisions. There is the debt ceiling issue on the horizon, all which some tangentially affect this reconciliation bill. And Republicans have already made it clear that in terms of the debt ceiling, Democrats are going to have to go alone. So there's a lot of political traps to run is going to be something to see in September for sure. And so all the commotion expected is September. So is that the reason that some lawmakers are in a rush to pass the bill before August recess? I do think the calendar does affect this in a really great way. Don't you, Chris? Yeah, I think the calendar affects it because of August. But I also think there's a feeling of not rush, but that we've been discussing this infrastructure package for months now. How long can this conversation go on? Particularly if you look at the left of the Democratic Party. And in their mind, they would like to take that more traditional infrastructure, the bridges, the, the highways, the roads, and just put it into that second reconciliation package that we're talking about. So in their mind, why wait any longer to try to negotiate something out of a bipartisan agreement if I can just take those provisions and add it to the reconciliation package that I know we want to talk about in a couple of minutes. And so their sort of patience for the bipartisan negotiation, 
I think is running out. Some of my friends who work on infrastructure more traditionally do you like the bipartisan package though, because you're able to do a lot more policy work? For example, one of the things about reconciliation and the process of reconciliation that we're talking about using the second process is on, is you're only allowed to really discuss spending or taxes under reconciliation rules in the Senate. And so some of the policy changes are what some of my friends who work in uh, the transportation lobby are interested in seeing this bill done a more bipartisan manner, particularly some of the changes around surface infrastructure and other things that we're seeing that move forward in the Senate. Because what we learned the last time that Republicans failed at reconciliation and trying to overturn the ACA is that creating policy through reconciliation is darn near impossible given the rules, because it has to fit the spending and taxing piece of it. A policy makes it out of order, practically. So now moving on to this package that Democrats are compiling that we've been talking about, what provisions pertinent to our listeners do we know is included thus far? We don't know anything for sure right now. So let's talk a little bit about the process that they're using. We've been talking a little bit about reconciliation, and that's a process of only needing a majority vote in the Senate to pass it. So you don't need the 60 votes. However, there are restrictions around what you can do, as John alluded to, of it has to be spending or tax issues. So that's still quite a bit of territory, but it's not policy areas. And so that's the reconciliation arena that we're talking about. In order to get to reconciliation, the House and Senate have to pass a budget resolution. The Senate Budget Committee has passed a budget resolution on a partisan basis. Uh, Keep in mind, the Senate Budget Committee is actually the committee that Senator Sanders chairs. So you essentially have a socialist chairing that committee. So the budget resolution that's come out of there is pretty robust. Budget resolutions essentially set up the framework for the way Congress does its appropriations and also allows uh, a reconciliation bill to begin. So a budget resolution passed doesn't actually affect their lives to the extent of nothing's going to change. What a budget resolution does is allow other things to begin their process, appropriations, How much does each of the spending bills get to spend on appropriations? And then also allows a reconciliation process to start. So if we look at what's in that budget resolution, specifically what's in that budget resolution that pertains to NHU, we see some tax and spend provisions. One of the quote-unquote tax or revenue raising areas of it is prescription drugs. And they propose in a very large prescription drug reforms in there Things largely along the lines of an HR3, including things along the line that would allow Medicare to negotiate drug costs, not only in the the Medicare market, but also allow it to do that in the traditional employer-based market, saving the federal government considerable amounts of money, which is why we're counting it as a revenue raiser. And so that's outlined in the budget resolution. Uh, On the spending side of things, Um, they make the ACA subsidies that were in the American Rescue Plan permanent. So those increased subsidies out there are made permanent. And when I say permanent, I I will put that in air quotes because actually it is 10 to 15 years. It's actually not permanent, but obviously 10 to 15 years is, is a considerable amount of time. So the budget resolution makes that permanent. The budget resolution also includes changes to Medicare, And that change to Medicare also would expand traditional fee-for-service Medicare into vision, dental, and hearing, something that Medicare does not currently provide. 
And so that's all in the budget resolution. Again, if we pass the budget resolution from the Senate now, and that has it, it's only passed out of the budget committee. So out of the Senate and the House, again, I would just remind you that that doesn't actually change anything in the real world. What that then allows to happen is the committees to then take up reconciliation. They look at the instructions that are in that budget resolution and the budget resolution is essentially you need to raise X amount of dollars and you need to spend X amount of dollars in these areas. And so that's where the rubber will really meet the road. And we'll see, does prescription drugs really raise that level of revenues? And can you get essentially every Senate Democrat to vote for that? And can you get a majority of the House to vote for that? I'm skeptical on the levels that they say are going to be able to be raised on prescription drugs. I'm also skeptical that there are actually votes to have a Medicare-negotiated prescription drugs go through, particularly because you did see in the House, 10 House Democrats say they are not supportive of H.R. 3, which does that prescription drugs negotiated by Medicare. And obviously, the Democrats were only controlling the House at this point by about three votes after the special election that took place last night in Texas. So I think some sort of prescription drugs could take place there, but that would raise you considerably less funds. And when you raise considerably less funds, that then makes it less room to spend. So do you expand Medicare and do vision and hearing and maybe not dental? So dental is always going to be one of the more expensive sides of things. Do we continue to do things like Black maternity health that has been outlined by both the Biden administration and has been supported actually on a largely bipartisan basis and would be put in reconciliation. So there's questions if we raise less money on the revenue side, do we get to spend less on the spending side? We would be concerned about other revenue raisers that could come down the line. Like, would you be looking to cap the employer exclusion? Those sorts of things would be huge fall on the sword level issues for any issue that we would fight vigorously back. So we do concern about any times if revenue doesn't come in from other areas, does it start to go after areas that uh, NAHU would have considerable concerns about? So it's a 50-50 Senate. Will Senator Menendez, who represents pharmaceutical companies in New Jersey, go along with setting prices in the market? I don't know. I think there are a number of House progressives who say that if immigration is not part of the package, they walk. And there are all these different factions who say that if their piece of what they want is not included, they're walking. This is really going to be a delicate dance here. And I'm not sure that they're able to make conciliation work at all. So everything I laid out is reconciliation within the healthcare arena. There are actually tons of issues that people are talking about handling for reconciliation that have nothing to do with healthcare. NHU obviously does not get involved in topics that are not healthcare related, but those are definitely areas that you could see breakdown in negotiations on. And as we saw with the last time reconciliation was done for the American Rescue Plan, this all has to get past the Senate parliamentarian. We saw last time around the effort to raise the minimum wage. The Senate parliamentarian said, no, that is not a spending or revenue raising issue. That's a policy issue. Therefore, it is being stripped out of the reconciliation package. There's lots of topics that people want to put in the reconciliation package from immigration to other infrastructures, all sorts of topics across the board, family and medical leave, all these sorts of things that we see in President Biden's American Family Plan. And the question is, 
are some of these things going to be allowed by the parliamentarian? And she struck down the minimum wage, so we know she's not afraid to stick up for Senate rules. And so I think that that still leaves a lot to be discussed. As John pointed out, reconciliation is likely to be really negotiated out in September after they come back. But the question is, how do you actually hold all of the Senate Democrats together? And that, that includes from the Bernie Sanders side on the socialist side of things, but to the very much more conservative side of Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, who we saw striking out several things from the American Rescue Plan. They lowered the amount that would go into unemployment, other sorts of areas where they were not comfortable with. I think you're likely to see those same sort of negotiations go on in reconciliation. And is there a point that the Elizabeth Warrens and Senator Sanders of the world feel the bill has been watered down so much that they don't want to pass it either? You recall in 2017 when the reconciliation to repeal the ACA failed on Senator McCain of Arizona's voting thumbs down. Senator Sinema from Arizona may react in the same fashion. So the next wild card here is the whole issue around debt ceiling, which will need to be raised, and that will fall on Democrats to figure out. And Republicans aren't going to create a pathway to spend trillions and trillions of dollars. So again, it's going to be a very delicate dance in September, but we will be watching the healthcare provisions look at the, what the framework is for adding additional benefits, hearing, dental, and vision, that it hopefully mirrors uh, what we have in the MMA with regard to plans competing for business. Yeah, and I, I would agree with John, particularly as we look at reconciliation within the Medicare Advantage universe, I think is where a lot of the focus be, as we talked about traditional Medicare, at least in the budget resolution being proposed to expand into vision, dental, and hearing. We want to also keep Medicare Advantage in mind when looking at the pay-for side of things. We've heard lots of rumors around Medicare Advantage taking a cut as part of the pay-for for the reconciliation package. And this has to do with issues of uh, upcoding and other sorts of things that have gone on in Medicare Advantage. But we also don't want to see Medicare Advantage being the pay-for, the big cut, and these seniors who are using Medicare Advantage get hurt or have to spend more as it becomes uh, a possible pay-for that's on the table when they're trying to generate revenue for that reconciliation package. So keeping Medicare Advantage and how many seniors like it and the affordability of it is going to be a big priority of ours as we start discussing that reconciliation package. But remember that 2022, next year, is a midterm election and no politician wants to cut benefits. And so I think that any cuts will be pretty small. I don't believe it will cut into your commission, and I don't think that it'll cut into benefits, but it'll be making a statement to the plans about their behavior in terms of upcoding. You know, obviously NHU is very supportive of Medicare Advantage. Millions of seniors love the product. At the same time, since a lot of us here work for the insurance carriers, upcoding is a, is a real concern and is something that I think Medicare Advantage carriers have brought upon themselves. So I think there is a real discussion to have around upcoding. For those of you who don't know, upcoding is the issue of you go into the hospital for one problem or another, and Medicare Advantage sort of picks the code that's going to bring the biggest reimbursement back from the federal government. And so that is something that clearly is happening. I think the question is, how does the federal government respond to this? Do they go after something that is somewhat a legitimate issue? 
or do they try to really gouge it and take tons of money out of Medicare Advantage because of something some of the MA carriers have done? One of the other things that we'll be keeping an eye on a reconciliation are some things that were not in the budget resolution that the Senate Budget Committee is talking about, but are things that were put in President Biden's American Family Plan. One particular area that gives NHU quite a bit of concern is this idea of lowering the age of Medicare to 60. NHU has huge concerns about what this means for cost to Medicare. And remember, Medicare is already something that is scheduled to be insolvent eventually because of spending. And then the negative effects that that would have on the employer-based market. Are people staying on their employer plan? Are they going over to their Medicare plan? What does that mean for the employer-based market? And this was part of President Biden's running for president and part of his American family plan. It is something that is wildly popular amongst the progressive side of the Democratic Party. It was not in the budget resolution, but it's something that we know is still going to be fought for within reconciliation amongst progressives to try to get in there. One of the other popular sections that people are discussing about dealing with in reconciliation is related to Medicaid. So when the ACA passed Congress and was signed by President Obama, Medicaid was expanded in all 50 states. However, this was struck down the courts and the court said that no, each state has the right to make a decision on if they're doing Medicaid expansion or not. We then saw various states implement Medicaid expansion tended to be along the lines of if they vote more Democratic, they expanded. If they vote more Republican, then they not. The ACA provided the federal government matching of 90% for those. Since then, we've seen a patchwork of some other states pass Medicaid expansion. That was partially done sometimes through state initiative and referendum. So we still have several states that have not passed Medicaid expansion. So if you look at who's still uninsured in this country, there are a couple of different buckets of people. There were a bucket of people who were just above 400% of poverty because they were not eligible for ACA subsidies. We've seen that group quickly get coverage in the last year, no longer having that cliff at over 100% of poverty. Another pool of uninsured out there is illegal aliens. Congress has not wanted to deal with that until they deal with immigration reform. One of the largest pool of the uninsured out there is the people who don't make enough money to qualify for ACA subsidies, but they make too much money to qualify for Medicaid in a state that did not expand Medicaid. So you have this gap of citizens out there who don't qualify for either program. This is something the Democrats are quite insistent upon they want to fix within reconciliation. Question really comes down to, and this is where the debate will take place in the next month, is how do you do that? We've already said we can't force the states to expand Medicaid. Court has determined that. So there's a couple of different options out there. Lloyd Doggett of Texas wants to allow counties to do Medicaid expansion. So counties themselves would be able to run the Medicaid program for those sections that are in between. The problem with that idea is that causes a very piecemeal approach where you have major areas around Atlanta and Dallas and those sorts of size counties doing this. Smaller counties, I think, having quite a bit of difficulty trying to pull that off. And you still have that sort of red versus blue divide of when a county decides to expand or not. You have another idea that's out there coming from the senators from Georgia, and they would create a federal Medicaid program. So essentially what would happen is the federal government would run Medicaid within the band that's between 
the ACA subsidies and the pre-Medicaid expansion. So that has been an idea that Democrats are looking at. The difficulty with that is you have people on Medicaid's and their incomes often change. What happens if you are in a state that did not expand Medicaid and so you're in a Medicaid program and then you, your income increases slightly, and then do you jump into a federal Medicaid program? And is it a different carrier than that was running your state Medicaid program? You end up with this churning effect. You end up with sort of poor continuing of care and left with a lot of questions there on how to properly do this. You're also creating a program that is now entirely federally run, which I think raises a lot of concerns, especially when you look at questions around Medicare for all and other single payer issues out there. And I think you also will get a court challenge. I, I think in general, with the Democrats tampering with Medicaid and affecting these states, I think you're going to end up with a lot of questions out there. The third idea that's being debated out there is why not take the ACA subsidies and go in the other direction? So instead of worrying about going up from 100% of poverty and stopping the cliff that was at 400%, let's run the ACA subsidies in the opposite direction where it goes down below 100% of poverty and meets the threshold of where Medicaid didn't expand. That discussion has been underway and is something, particularly the Ways and Means Committee is looking hard at. Um, There are questions from the carriers about pulling off this idea too. Their needs and their concerns are often different. Their roadblocks to care are often different. Um, And so similar carriers have a lot of concerns about that population. And are ACA plans really prepared to take on essentially what is a Medicaid population that has different problems and needs, but we'd be putting the traditional ACA market in there to deal with it. So there's a lot of questions that is, would you be putting people in an insurance plan that's really appropriate for their lives? And uh, the insurance carriers themselves being concerned of, are we prepared to take on this population? It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. John, who are we toasting to this week? Well, it's with great sadness that we're actually going to toast Senator Enzi, who was a longtime fixture in the Senate. He was a budget chairman. He led the health committee. He was uh, very bipartisan. He was a very humble man who joined his family shoe business out of college. He was famous for his 80-20 rule, often finding agreement with Senator Kennedy on 80% of any issue. A longtime staffer I know said of him, he was not a show pony, but a workhorse. And I think that's a fitting description. He was missed in the Senate in his very short few months that he's been in retirement, and his loss has been felt widely here in Washington by everyone. And may he rest in peace. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.